Nick Nanton, and welcome to Now to Next, the podcast where I interview some of the top experts and professionals all across the globe to talk about what's happening now and what you can expect next. After 14 years as one of the most feared men in the Massachusetts prison system, Andre Norman found his purpose, appealed his sentence, was granted parole, and returned to the world a changed man. As the ambassador of hope, Andre's work was instrumental in bringing an end to the protests in Ferguson, Missouri, work that earned him a fellowship at Harvard University, so from prison to Harvard. In addition, Andre utilizes his unique understanding of everyone, from corporate executives to prison inmates, to help them find their purpose and turn their lives around. He is a highly sought-after motivational speaker and serves as a consultant for executive groups, prison systems, and nonprofit organizations. Please welcome my friend, Andre Norman. How are you doing, buddy? I'm doing wonderful. How you doing, Nick? I'm Great doing good, man. How's uh, how's quarantine treating you? I'm actually, I'm out of quarantine. I'm back working in the prison. How are you? Yes, I, I cleared my 14 days because I've been traveling a lot prior to quarantine. I did 14 days in the house, and I finished my 14 days. I started going back in this week. So, I love it. I love it, man. Um, I have lots to talk to you about. Uh, certainly, and the prison system. I know. No uh, COVID-19 in prison yet, I hear. Is that, is that the case? It, it's going well. I mean, knock on wood. I mean, you it's the safest place to be right now. <laughs> Got that. All right, cool. I'm going to, I think I can tell, yeah. I'm going to play a little clip before we get started that I think will be a really good uh, setup for what we're going to talk about. It's very relevant in today's uh, climate and everything that's going on. So I'm going, to, I'm going to put this up and play it real quick, and we'll be back. It's about a two-and-a-half-minute clip. Okay. Junior year. Failing three years in a row, I show up late to class with a friend and a radio. <laughs> he wasn't even in the class. And the teacher said, you can't come in today, Drew. I don't feel like dealing with you. So I go out into the hallway. The security guard stops us and says, hey, Dre, you got to get out of the hallway. He said, I'll tell you what. In the auditorium, there's an event going on. Sit in the back, just shut up. Don't make no noise. He opens the auditorium and lets me in the auditorium. We're sitting in the back of the auditorium. There's some black guy down front with a bow tie telling all these kids, you can go to Italy, you can go to France, you can go to China. I'm like, yo, dude, way from the back. What are you talking about? Ain't nobody going to China, ain't nobody going to Italy. Then instead of telling me to get out, which would have been customary, he said, don't talk from the back, come talk to my face. My buddy started laughing at me like, whoa, we called you out. So out of pride and my buddy laughing, I walked down to the front. He said, you can go to all these different countries in the world that I'd never heard of. He said, you just got to fill this paper out. He put it inside of my radio. He said, don't say no for them. Fill out the paper, make them say no. Then you argue. Whatever, I leave. Fast forward three months later, it was February, and sure enough, it was the same day the papers were due. So I filled them out, grabbed my buddy Derek, who was a high school dropout, who was with me that day. We jumped in our stolen car. We ride over to the drop-off point. We had nothing else to do. Walk up to the door. This is nice white lady. I said, well, um, we're here for the, for the exchange student program. She looks at my application, and she says, where's your essay? I said, essay? She says, yeah, everybody has to write an essay. I said, oh, I ain't got no essay. See you later. Bye. She stopped me. She said, no. She got a table and a piece of paper. She said, sit down right there, and you write your essay. And after I wrote the essay, she said, you can go inside. She opens the door. We walk inside. And all these kids were interviewing with the different companies. There was 34 companies. When Reagan signed the policy for this program, he wanted urban kids to go, slash black kids. So he said, you can't look at grades. You have to have potential. You might interview 15 people. Then you'd put in a list, 1 to 15. Well, if Johnny gets it, we want Johnny. Then we'll take Sarah. Then we'll take Bobby. 1 to 15. I was number one on every list. The principal, he opens the folder up, and it says, scholarship winner Andre Norman. He's like, no, no, this is not possible. This kid hasn't passed a class ever in this school. He's been arrested multiple times. He beat up the senior class president as a freshman. There's no way humanly possible this kid won the scholarship. What was he even doing in the room? And the man told him, he said, first, let me explain something to you. It's not your money. Second, it's not your decision. And third, you have no say. Shook my hand. He said, let's go. And he took me to lunch. He didn't say, I told you so. He said, never say no for them. You got me crying again, Nick. I, I love that clip, man. 
I'm being crying watching myself. <laughs> hey, hey, man, that's what we do. All right, so there's there's a lot to uncover in that. I, I think a big piece of the theme that I want to talk about today is going to be dreaming, and and your backstory is a big piece of it. You know, uh, starting uh, a mentor of mine, Dan Sullivan. I'm going to read it so I don't mess it up because it's so good. Dan Sullivan was saying, particularly right now, look, the world is is looks different for sure right now. What is it going to look like on the other side of this? Nobody really knows. And so the, that level of uncertainty has caused so many people to stop in their tracks. We certainly know. I, I met you through our good friend Joe Polish. We both know that during times like this, um, uh, anxiety, everything is like an all-time high. It, it's a pressure cooker for addiction, for all of our bad habits. Uh, and so one of the problems is people right now are they, – they've lost in a lot of cases – and then without thinking about it, the ability to dream and the way that we find our futures and the way we take action is by dreaming. And the way Dan Sullivan says it is that there's no action for anyone until they extend their future and extending your future is all about what do you see your dream as being past today, past tomorrow? What is that big dream that you're looking for? So I really want to focus a lot of this on, on you, Andre, and, and sort of your take on that during that during that period of time when you were asked to write this essay clearly you somebody saw something in you which is a recurring theme i think in all of our lives but uh you did not have that dream at first when you saw that guy in the auditorium tell, tell us about what tell us about what made you buy it like he led you to having a dream what do you think about the presentation about that that was just timing. What, what led you to start dreaming that maybe this could be for you? At the, when I went into the auditorium, it was just to get out of the hallway. They didn't want, the superintendent was coming through. He was checking the school. When the superintendent comes to the school, clears the hallways. So the security guard let me go in the auditorium under the auspices I behaved, which he knew better. So when I was called to the front, what the man did, he had no idea. Maybe he did. He challenged me. <laughs> When you challenge me, I respond. If you berate me, you scream at me. But when you challenge me, you get the best of Andre because there's something in me that responds to a challenge. So he said, here, he did it with a challenge and he put it on me. He didn't put it on anybody else. He put it on me. And when I walked away that day, I had no interest or intent on following up. It just so happened I was sitting in my house that day and the, the date kept clicking in my head. I pull my desk open and lo and behold, it's the day. So I'm like, why not? I mean, why not? So we jump in the car, we go over. And it was all the things that could have happened to shut it down. I didn't have to have a ride. I happened to have a friend with a stolen car. I got to the lady at the desk could have turned us away because we didn't have our essay. We didn't have family with us. There's two random black kids in an event with all these grandmoms and moms and dads and whole families. We're dressed in hoodie. We had like leather jackets on and jeans. So. She didn't look at reasons to get rid of me. I say this today. There's one or two things you can do. You can try to find a way to make it happen. You can try to find a way to shut it down, whether that's your dream or somebody else's dream. And she looked to find a way to make it happen. And that's what she did for me. And when I got into the room, I didn't believe I belonged. I went through the entire day, had the entire experience. And I walked out of there thinking that was not really a waste. It was a great afternoon, but... I never dreamed that I would win, nor did I ever fathom I'd be number one on every list. It just wasn't conceivable based on my circumstance, my situation, and my mindset at the time. But they showed me, don't say, that's, the, that's the thing that got me when I was watching. They says, don't say no for them. I was so pre, pre-equipped to deny myself, to stop you from having to deny me. I was so quick to tell myself no, so whoever was trying to give me a chance didn't have to say no. I was scared of rejection. Ah, that's a big deal right there. Okay, so being scared of rejection is a normal thing. Um, I find it, uh, the, it's a muscle I find. The more you practice, the less it, the less it concerns you, I'll say. But uh, there's a lot of people right now who are feeling uh, rejected and probably dejected. There's a ton of unemployment right now. There's a ton of... Uh, things you can't do. You can't like my parents just came by to drop some stuff off and you know, they're in their seventies. They gotta be, 
they have to stay a little bit away and, and their life is their kids and their grandkids. Like that's, that's tough. Um, everyone, it, I have a friend who's a police officer who said, unfortunately, suicides are way up right now, which it sort of makes sense. People, people coming in and, and worrying on their own. Uh, my good friend, Dr. Ned Hallowell, I'm sure you know Ned as well. He says, right. when you worry by yourself, you're, you're causing, you're causing yourself more worry. When you worry, with someone else, pick up the phone, talk to someone. When you worry with someone else, you instantly move to problem solving. But right. so th- this fear of rejection, um, can you give me any ideas on how, like obviously that was one, that was one win in, in the fear of rejection that you go, oh, maybe I can do this. Any other experiences in life? Well, I know you got plenty of experiences, but any other, any other things you, any other coaching you could give people to help them get over that fear of rejection? Cause we're all, having to do new things, having to ask new questions, having to ask for new things that there, there could be rejection because the world is different. How do we get over that? The first thing I'm going to tell the folks is I wouldn't use the terminology. It's technically the fair rejection. That's what it is. But from where I was sitting, it was my lifestyle. I wasn't looking at it as the person as, oh, I'm scared of rejection. No, that wasn't. Sub, it was internalized. It was subconscious. I wasn't con- so. Somebody said to me, Andre, are you scared of rejection? I said, No. Looking back, I used to run from things and shut things down because I was I didn't want to get the no. I didn't recognize it as it is. So most addicts or most people who are stressed out, somebody who's suicidal, they wouldn't tell you I have a problem. They're not going to say it because if I'm suicidal, I'm in a lifestyle. I'm in a mindset. So to say, Hey, Andre, you suicidal? No. I wouldn't call it that. I'm calling it nobody loves me. Nobody knows me. Nobody wants me. So the terminology around the, it, it was fear of, fear of rejection. But for me, it was a mindset. Nobody cared about me. I don't matter. I've been shut down before. So if you've been shut down before, you've been whatever the thing has happened before, we have to learn to dissem- disseminate before and now. Everything didn't exist until it existed. Whoa. <laughs> um, all right, so I know a lot of the work that you do is intervention work with particularly kids, uh, sort of talking them off the edge uh, if they're addicted to certain things or drugs. Or uh, Talk a little bit about that because I think it's important for people to hear that, particularly here and now, if they're struggling with a family member or themselves with not being able to, to turn off this addiction. Uh, tell people about sort of your work in, in that realm. Uh, my work with people who are struggling in addiction, that's why I teamed up with Joe Polish. Joe is heavy on intervention and helping people, not only helping them, but helping them in a certain way that shows humanity and kindness. Not just dragging someone to a better life, but actually walking with them, carrying them to a better life. So our first step is always, how do we do this with humanity? How do we do this with kindness? How do we do this with respect? Because you're in a stressful position, regardless if it's gambling addiction, Pornography addiction, work addiction, sugar addiction, whatever your thing is, is it's not to just drag you. And most treatment centers or treatment programs deny you access to the thing that you're addicted to. Denied access is not a solution. If I take you and hold you away from your family for six months, okay, you're gonna learn to cope. You're gonna learn to cope without your family. But the second I let you out, you're running back to them. I didn't make you not love them. I just denied you access. So the underlying reason. While I'm getting drugs isn't the problem. Drugs are the solution. I have a problem. I turn to drugs. So addressing the drugs doesn't address my problem. So when I speak to parents or I speak to teachers, I speak to execs, don't speak to, well, what kind of drugs you use? That's irrelevant. If it's marijuana, if it's alcohol, if it's sugar, if it's drinking, if it's prostitution, whatever you turn to is not the thing. That's just where you're comfortable. What is the thing that's making you run? That's what people generally don't talk about. I say, there's two things you can do. You can talk about my potential. Andre's so smart. He's so gifted. He's articulate. He's a great guy. Let's get him a leadership program. Let's get him a poetry class. My potential is not my problem. Let's talk about Andre's pain. Dad's not there, disconnected from his wife, disconnected from his son, disconnected from whatever the story's line is, is. He doesn't feel worthy. He feels left out. Until you talk to me about my pain, you're not going to move me forward. My pain is stopping my potential, not my potential stopping my pain. And oftentimes it's so easier to speak to the potential of the person versus speaking to the pain of the person. We'll take um, Kurt Cobain, fantastic singer, world renowned. 
Everybody spoke to his potential. Nobody spoke to his pain. We can go down the list of the greats. John Belushi, loved John Belushi growing up. Nobody spoke to John's pain. They all spoke to his potential. And people make allowances and adjustments based on somebody's potential. So if LeBron James is having a bad day, they're going to find a way to get him back on the court to his potential versus getting him to his pain point. And that's why I want people to understand, if you really want to help somebody in your life that's struggling, don't look at how great they are, how great you think they should be. Try to find out the thing that's making them hurt. The drug, secondary. Potential, secondary. Pain, primary. Love it. Great advice. Now, those of you just joining, this is uh, an episode of Now to Next with my friend Andre Norman. Andre, you went from a kid with lots of potential into the prison system, became a kingpin in prison. Let's talk about what landed you in prison. Like, obviously, it was a series of decisions. But tell us about that, how someone with as much, I mean, you ended up at Harvard later in life. Like, what was it that drove you in that direction? The thing that put me in prison above all else isn't, isn't one particular criminal act. It's what I just said about people who get high. The drug doesn't matter. It's the pain that drives them to the drug. So my criminal acts were robberies, gun possession, things of that nature. Not that they didn't matter in the sense of I didn't harm people. Those are the results. Those are what I'm running to. The reason I was in those places is because I quit. I used to be a trumpet player. I quit. I used to be a foreign exchange student. I quit. I used to be in a choir. I quit. I used to be in a lot of things. I used to be in a track club. I quit. I used to be my, fa- my sister's favorite brother. I, qu- I can tell you the things that I quit on in my life. That no- I would love to say nobody cared about me, but that'd be a lot. And Mr. Solis, Ms. Henderson, I'd be like 20 teachers who would pull their hair out right now if they heard me say that because they were there in person. So the baseline is I went to prison because I quit on myself. I quit on myself because my dad taught me to quit. When I was in the second grade, my dad walked out of the house and he didn't explain himself to me. My lesson from that is if he doesn't have to explain himself, I don't have to explain myself. If he can quit on me, I can quit on anything I want to. So I took that lesson and I became a quitter. And that's what got me to prison, because no matter what you gave me to do, when it got too hard or got too difficult or got too emotional or too close to heart, I quit. I quit on everything positive, which only left me the negatives. So you you go to prison and you clearly I mean, and I know you well enough now that you you thrive in any situation. I could put you in any situation and you're going to become the best. So somehow you became the best at prison, uh, not not from the guards point of view, but um, protecting yourself and running gangs, and everything else. I mean, just for someone who thankfully has never been there. Tell us a little bit about the, the inner workings and the psychology and, and maybe some things you learned there that maybe even helped you become better on the outside. But tell us a bit about that, that environment. The first thing I have to understand about prison is it's 99 percent mental, 1 percent physical, which is, is, is goes against the movies. The movies say something drastically different. The movies say it's all physical. It's not mental. Secondly, I'm going to talk to you about commerce. We have a lot of entrepreneurs that are on this podcast or going to come on your live. And yeah. they're like, oh, prison's about gangs and knives and people stabbing each other. No. And take a prison with 2,000 people in it. 50% of 2,000 is 1,000. Let's make 50% of the people drug addicts. I have 1,000 drug addicts in this prison. A bag of heroin when I was in jail was $50. So if I can sell a bag of heroin to every addict, that's $50,000 per day. Now let's throw in a bag of cocaine for the cocaine addict. Call it $25. That's another $25,000 per day. Throwing some marijuana. Let's throw in some alcohol. Let's throw in some gambling. You're saying, so at the end of the day, right now, on a day in a prison, you're talking about anywhere from $150,000 to be made out on the prison yard in drug sales. Nobody's fighting for colors. Don't believe the movies. This is not the movie Colors with Sean Penn. They're fighting over the territory and the money. Who controls the money? The bigger the gang, the stronger the gang, control more territory, make more money. There's hundreds of thousands of dollars being made in prison right now. A cell phone in prison. This thing right here in a prison costs you no less than $1,000 and $2,000. Let's go back to the prison I was talking about. 2,000 people in prison, everybody wants a cell phone. If you can sell a cell phone to 1,000 people, 
a thousand times two hundred. No, excuse me, a thousand times a thousand. No, no, it's a thousand yeah. prisoners. There's a thousand phones at a thousand dollars. It's crazy. Million bucks, getting rich. Yeah. Million, yeah, you can make a million bucks if I sold a phone to half the prison population. That's a million bucks. How does that get? How do drugs and these phones get into the prison? That's a long, way longer discussion. And it's <laughs> so it, 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 let's say this: it gets in. Okay. It uh, definitely yeah. get, it definitely gets in because no, why it gets in because there's a market for it. Why does heroin get into our country? There's a market for it. Why does pornography sell? There's a market for it. Pet rocks sold $27 million worth of pet rocks were sold. Why? There was a market for it. If there's a market for it, we're, we're going to buy it as Americans. So there's a market for cell phones. So you take anybody and say, hey, I give $1,000 for something that costs 50 They're tempted. So the temptation is there. They'll, they'll find a way. So the way is found. What people don't understand is that the amount of money that's made in prison or can be made in prison. And that's the driving force behind what happens day to day. Because when I grew up in a gang in prison, the objective was selling cigarettes, selling marijuana, selling cocaine, selling heroin. It wasn't let's go fight the guys down the hall who have a different color shirt on. It was like, hey, we need to sell these cigarettes. Hey, we need to sell this heroin. And that was our focus. How can we make money? We have to take care of our family. We have to buy stuff. We have to buy whatever the thing is. Even though we couldn't really spend the money on anything productive, making money is a habit, is addiction. We're addicted to making money. So, and that's what we did. We, and most people chase money. And because I was a good thinker, as well as being a good tough guy, I was able to think of different strategies on how that we can make more money. Back in the 80s, you could actually bank by mail. You could actually bank by mail. You could open up a bank account through the mail. Sounds crazy. Now you can open a bank account online. You could do right. that in the mail system back. You could just mail them in deposits and checks and bank by mail. And that's what we did. I showed people how to set up bank accounts. I showed them how to move money within and how to, how to make sure it was safe. We, we went through, I just, you give me a problem, I give you a solution. That's my specialty. If it's Ferguson, if it's Honduras, if it's Guatemala, if it's West Africa, if it's a kid addicted, you give me a problem, I'll give you a solution. Because as a kid, when I was hungry, I had to come up with a solution. When kids wanted to beat me up after school, I had to come up with a solution. When my mom didn't come home, I had to come up with a solution. When my sister went away to school, I've been forced since birth to solve problems. So it's just innate for me. It's second nature. So when somebody says, Andre, Here's a problem. I'll give you a solution. It's just instantaneous. My mom taught me one lesson. She said, Andre, you got a big mouth. And that's great. And one of these days, they're going to call you down front. They're going to put you on a stool and then say, okay, big mouth, you're the big mouth. What's the answer? Give us a solution to the problem that you're griping about. And when you don't have an answer, you don't have a solution, they're going to look to the people and say, this is your guy. But the big mouth, one of you with no solution. So therefore, since he doesn't have a solution, we're discrediting all of you. And we're going to go with our solution, which is not good for any of you. So my mother taught me as a young man, if you don't have a solution, don't make noise. So I, I come up with solutions since I was a kid. And I pray that they call on me. And they're like, yeah, call that guy. He won't have a solution. <laughs> Wrong guy. <laughs> Speaking of moms, my mom just posted that she's enjoying this, so you, you haven't messed this up so bad yet. Hey, mom. I tried, <laughs> wait a minute. When we was in Florida, I didn't get a chance to meet mom. We went to the restaurant. We were supposed to go meet mom and dad. We didn't make it. We never, I never made it back. Yeah, you'll, you'll I, be back. We got we to gotta do some service here in Orlando. We're going to serve our community, right? So we I'm with you. All right, we'll do that. All right, so you went. Uh, tell us about Ferguson. I mean, that's crazy. So you helped solve that problem. Tell us, for those who don't remember, tell us what was going on, who called you. What, just tell us that story. Ferguson started for me two years before Michael Brown died. Um, there's a, I, went to, I went to St. Louis with YPO to do a speech for the YPO chapter. And my philosophy is any speech that I give for a corporate, I go in five or six days early and do volunteer work. So I went into St. Louis six days before my speech and started doing volunteer work. And I met a family, Dave and Susie Spence while I was there. YPO was great family, and they had been volunteering and helping a local high school out 
for like four or five years. And they'll try to turn it around. So me and Susie ended up in the room together. We Our hearts hit, our minds hit, our passions hit. And I just joined the team. I'm like, I'm on Susie's team. Well, let's go. And I started going to that school. And me and Susie did a complete school turnaround. And school's 100% better. We finished. We shake hands. I met a lot of people in St. Louis. I actually lived with them for 10 months. I didn't stay in a hotel. I lived in their house. We ate dinner together. I drove the kids to school, everything. And so they're family to me. So I leave. Fast forward, Michael Brown Jr. dies. The entire, people don't understand, Ferguson and St. Louis is about two minutes apart. It's like a street. It's a border. So when Ferguson happens, Michael Brown Jr. dies, the whole world erupts. Everybody's like, what's going on? How do we fix this? I started getting calls from the YPO members and the EO members in St. Louis. And eventually, when it got really, really to the point when the verdict came out, when there was no verdict, they said, Andre, you have to come. So Dan Curran, who's a brother to me, an EOer in St. Louis, Dave Spence, we flew in. We started talking. To the, we went out on the street at 2 o'clock in the morning. Every leader you can imagine had been to Ferguson prior to me. But they all went outside at 2 o'clock in the afternoon and did a photo op and got out of town. I went outside at 2 o'clock in the morning and was talking to guys who were out on the streets mad, angry, with guns, with signs, and they were protesting. I started talking to them and asking them, why are you out here? Why are you upset? What does a win look like? That's the funniest thing. Nobody had ever asked them, what does a win look like? They were just angry, frustrated, and tired, and that's why they were out there. So I started saying, well, what does a win look like? And in the end, I got all, I got, I found the top three guys who were leading the street movement. I went back to Dave Spence. Dave was able to get the mayor of Ferguson, the police chief of Ferguson, and himself. Then we got some other folks, and we all flew to Harvard University, and we sat down and had a discussion. And it's online. We had a discussion about how do we actually bring peace to Ferguson. The panel went horrible. I had organized the whole thing. It was all set up. And some people came in the room and got on. It just a long story short, the panel went like this and nosedived. It went horrible. You name it, I was embarrassed. (laughs) I love Dave Spence. That is my brother. I was so hurt by what happened at that panel that I was disgusted. And he was even more disgusted. And I'm like, Charles Ogletree, the doctor who professor over the law school, he said, Andre, it's not over. He took all the panelists, the original panelists, and my people, and we all went to dinner together. And at that dinner, the protest leaders had a chance to talk to the police chief in America. Because I told one of the guys, I said, dude, I said, OK, you cussed him out. You made your mark. You pushed the button. But did you get a win for your people? I said, if you want to get a win for your people, you need to go at that table and talk to that man like he's a man, not like he's some kid. Had he said to you what you said to him, there'd have been a fight. But he can't fight you because of his job. If you want to win for your people, you need to learn to talk to that man and communicate. So he went over, had a have a conversation. They started dialoguing. Everything started going well. They went back. Everybody went back to St. Louis slash Ferguson, and they had communication. And that same man ran for state rep and won. He served two terms in the state house. Now he was creating policy alongside the governor on how to make Ferguson and St. Louis and Missouri better. And it was just a collaboration between people who cared and people who knew how to make things move. And we got on the plane and we left. (laughs) That's that's how it works. Uh, So tell me about your book, man. You you have a new book just came out. Uh, Tell us the title. Tell us the inspiration. Tell us about it, man. Yo, I'm (laughs) amped about this. It's just sitting here on my desk. Not just because um, (laughs) when I was in prison, I read a book called Makes Me Want to Holler by Nathan McCall. I read a bunch of books. I read um, Malcolm X. I read Soul on Ice. I read all the black novels you can think of. I read Nathan McCall's book, Makes Me Want to Holler. And I really didn't like his book. It was well written, but as a what I, tough guy prisoner, there were some things that I didn't like. And I'm like, this isn't representing me. Because you as a white guy sitting at home reading this, thinking this is all of us. And I'm like, no, I'm going to tell them the real story. So I actually sat down and wrote my story out. I had like 400 pages handwritten. I got it typed up. And I came home from prison after, 20, after 14 years, I'm out here. And I kept trying to take that manuscript and get it launched. But I could never get it launched because a lot of reasons. I'm busy, I'm moving, I'm running. 
that I had a great friend named Jeff Ward from St. Louis. He tried to, he hired a writer. He raised money and he hired a writer to tell my story. He said, Andre, your story has to get out. The writer was horrible for me. He wrote other people's stuff. Great. Him writing my story did not work. So at the end of that, it just like, it just crashed. And the story went back on the shelf. Cameron Harold, John Rulin. John's from St. Louis. It's the St. Louis thing. They, yeah. they know me. They love me. We're at the Genius Network annual event. John called. Cameron was there. They cornered Tucker Max from Scribe and said, you have to tell this man's story. So me, Tucker, and Cameron got together. And Cameron and Tucker said, okay, let's do this. And Tucker said, Scribe is with you. We got you. We're going to put your story out. They set me up with, with one of their scribes. And this is the craziest thing. They gave me the, the ghostwriter. I get on the phone with him. I said, this is going to be real simple. I sent him my manuscript, all 400 pages. Whoop, emailed it to him. I said, there you go. Just hit this, type it up, and let's go. <laughs> and I'll, then he read it. I think he read it. And he went through it. Then we went through. He did, we used the scribe process, and we finished my book. Nick, ask me how many pages out of that manuscript did we use? How many pages do you think we used out of the 400? Um... Well, you're leading me now. I, I say 50. None. Yeah, got it. None. <laughs> At the end of the day, we wrote this book, and like the same way I cried when the video played, I cried when I read my book the first time. And the baseline was, Tucker told me, Andre, you don't write books. Why are you trying to give me something you wrote? That's not what you do. I write books. I have bestsellers. I do this for a living. I'm not showing off. Don't give me something that you don't do well and tell me to produce it. Let me produce it and put it together for you because that's what he does. And Scribe put together a book that I'm super happy with. I mean, I'm super happy with this book. And the book is about my life and how I came from the inner city, went through prison, came home, and I've been traveling the world just being helpful and, and living a great life and giving back. That's why it's called Ambassador of Hope. Because it's not just about I made it, I give back. When I get off this call today, literally, when I get off this call, I'm going to put on my shoes, and I'm going to drive down the street. I live two minutes from the prison. I'll be in prison five minutes after this call is over, giving back. Coronavirus, people are sick, people are scared, I'm giving back. So in real time. So it doesn't stop. This isn't something. I've, I've seen people speak. They start talking about something they did in 1975. I'm like, dude, this is 2020. Well, in 1975, or even me talking about Ferguson, Ferguson is an epic moment in history. I can spend the rest of my career talking about just Ferguson. I've never gone any place and given a speech on just Ferguson. That was a moment. I did my part. I kept moving. And I'm into what have I done today? Not what did I did last week or last year. And I'm not knocking anybody who's done something momentous 10 years ago. But I, I watched um, what, what the, the Olympic the, the Olympic hockey team loved him. Jim Craig's my guy, but um, I don't want to see a speech on that. Not in 2020. I actually tried to look up Jim Craig. I want him to come speak to my guys at the prison because his story with his mom and his dad and his story was epic. The Olympic hockey team is over. <laughs> That's done. That's in the books. You know what I'm saying it's like Tom Brady is officially a Tampa Bay Buccaneer. It's over. It's over. I can't, I can't talk about Tom Brady last year. It doesn't work anymore. So, right. but, the, but the key thing is I was stuck on, I wanted validation for something that wasn't right. I went to Tucker Max and said, validate my manuscript, not write my story. He said, Andre, I don't want to validate something that's not correct. Let me write your story. Your story is stronger than what you wrote it, but I was personally attached to it. So the lesson was, I don't ask for validation for something that may not be correct. And if people do validate it for you, they don't care about you. Tucker loved me enough to tell me, Dre, put that in, put that in the archives, put it on the shelf. Let's, let's write a book. That's not a book. That's a stream of emotional outbursts. Let me write a book for you. So Tucker, thank you for the book. Tucker is a brilliant guy, as is Cameron. I mean, John Ruin's amazing, uh, amazing people to, to look up in their own right. Uh, you and I have talked a lot about the work you do uh, with youth these days. Um, oh, I want to talk about that as well as executives, but, and maybe it's a common thread. 
you see a lot of people who, when we talked last time, uh, a lot of kids who are, they're hurting, turned to drugs, uh, yeah, pain. And a lot of it is, it seemed to be, you and I were talking, at least a piece that was sort of a, a detachment from, I don't know, from their family, from other people. What is it you think that's causing so many kids to turn today? I mean, it's, it's probably not a different story than any generation, but so many kids today turn to, to drugs, pornography, drinking, addiction. What is it? I would say most parents, not all, most parents start their kids out and we teach them the best we can to be better people. And then what happens is my mother had this saying, they're your child from zero to six because they're only in your house. At six years old, they go to school. They're not your kid anymore because now they're in a room for a bunch of other kids. And they start sharing ideas. First they share Jello, then they start sharing ideas. <laughs> so, once the Jello's gone, it's over. So now the world has impact on your child. From zero to six, it's just you and the husband. By six on, the world has a voice. And kids make bonds with other kids. And they take on their problems. They take on their atmosphere. They take on their emotions, their environment. And it's a place that parents generally aren't really super engaged. You drop your kid off at school, you go away. You come back, you pick them up. You think, since I, I paid a lot for my kids elementary school, so I'm thinking he's in a great situation. But those kids are coming from homes with parents who are struggling, who have issues, who are doing things good or bad or indifferent. And they're, ha they're having an effect on my child. I'm not cognizant as much as I should be of the environment and the inputs from that environment. Fast forward, my kid learns to become dependent on his friends in kindergarten. Everything's about holding hands and hugging and walking in circles with your buddies. And that dependence starts in kindergarten and fast forward to middle school, high school, they're super dependent on their friends. And now with the invent of social media and smartphones, it used to be when you got on the bus and went home, it was over. Or your mom picked you up, it was over. Now you can text your friend, Snapchat your friend, Instagram, TikTok, whatever they want to call it. You can stay connected all day, every day. So right now, millions of kids are home disconnected from their friends. They're disconnected from their, from their high school friends. They're disconnected from their middle school friends. They're disconnected from their elementary school friends. The people I spend eight hours a day with. You don't spend eight hours a day with your kids. Your kids go to school at eight o'clock in the morning. They come home at three. You get home at five. Everybody's in bed by eight. You got three hours. Yeah. So you mean during this quarantine time? Yeah, everyone's during quarantine. All the all the kids are being disconnected from their friends. That's hard. It's a great thing that we have the of smartphones and computers and technology where they can stay connected, but we underestimate the relationships that kids form with their friends. And we think as parents that we should supersede that because we pay the bills, you look like us, and we got the best interest for you. It's not about who has the best interest for you. It's who are you most connected to. And it's that person you spend eight hours a day with in person. And then the person, when you get home to us, you're rushing to your phone to get on to talk to. Your kid just spent eight hours with their friend. They come home, hi, dad. They want to jump on their phone and talk to their friend again. That's what we've built. That socialization piece has been overdone to the point where we've lost connection and input into our own kids. We've accepted that our kids will tune us out at 13. That's built in. If your kids stop talking at 13, all your friends are like, oh, that's normal. It's not normal. It's, it's a pathway most times that opens the door for bad things. So we have to keep that. We have to think in advance of 13, what can we build in this kid's life that we, doesn't ha we don't have to disconnect? And the friend doesn't override us to the extent where drugs becomes a possibility, fitting in becomes a possibility, self-esteem becomes a possibility of questions. How do you do that as a parent? I got a 15-year-old, a 12-year-old, an 8-year-old. I think I'm doing good. But for everyone listening, like, well, as a parent, how do you make sure you keep that connection? You have to, you have to like the same way you run your business, you have meetings, you have people who check in, you have people who oversee stuff. We don't do that with our kids. We just think what we say is great because we know best. You don't run your business like that, but we run our kids like that. And it's like, okay, if you ran your business the way you ran your kids, they're probably close. Because there's a lot of faith in a 12-year-old or faith in a 15-year-old that you wouldn't actually put in grown people. You super micromanage, you, you're detail-specific on contracts. Your detail specific. If somebody would have sent the wrong Zoom link to me, they, not, they, they would have heard about it. But your kid comes home late from school, well, it's okay. 
We give passes and things. They need the structure. They need the accountability. They need dad's professional voice in their personal life. The same tactician that we are in business, we need to be a loving way in their lives. And just think in advance, when this kid is two, he's going to be 15. So what does that look like? We control the environments they go in. So if I put my kid in a Christian school, he's going to get Christian values. If I put him over here, where, where am I putting my child? There's a school setting. We're going to pick the best school in theory, whatever that looks like. But after school stuff, what are the programs that he's doing or she's doing? What are the, the habits that they pick up or the habits that we allow them to pick up? My son got all his habits from dad and mom. Now, we're, now we don't like his habits. <laughs> Why do you do that? Well, who taught you to do that? Well, we did. <laughs> That's great. Uh, right now, there's a lot of people who are concerned about what's coming next. And, and there's a lot of things we just simply can't control right now. What would, what's the advice you give those? You, you're going out and serving. One of the things I've been telling people, look, uh, I call it uh, my friend, Dr. Nito Cobain, his, his rule of thirds. You got to spend a third of your time earning, a third of your time learning, a third of your time serving. I think that's a life well lived. You know, you're doing one of those things right now. You, you're, you're going out and serving a lot and that's helping you get to this time. What's, what do you tell people as the ambassador of hope to help them find a new normal and, and to find a, a hopeful future, no matter what they can control beyond this. What, what do you tell them? What should they do? It's a hard message. I've learned some hard lessons in my life. I've learned some hard lessons. I had to go through some tough stuff to learn some hard lessons to be who I am. I've sat in solitary confinement. I've been chained to floorboards of planes. I've been taught. I've gone through some hard lessons to make the man you see sitting here wasn't easy. I wouldn't even recommend it for myself, let alone anybody else. But to be who I am, I had to go through what I did. To be who you're going to be, you have to go through. There's no success without going through. There's no victory without a testimony. You know what I'm saying? There's no testimony. There has to be a test. So it's, it's hard. It's really hard to go through this. Your financial stops. Your movement stops. Your vision of the future stops. A lot of things stop because... This is a new environment. To me, unfortunately, this reminds me of prison. I have no control. I don't know what's coming tomorrow. I don't know what the day holds. It's completely uncertain. It's not up to me. I'm sitting in a basement of a prison saying, oh, my God, what is the world going to look like? I've been removed from the world for 14 years, locked in darkness. Now I'm about to, what is it going to look like when I get outside? What is it going to look like when I walk out of this place? So the world is about to go through the reentry process. This is what prisoners go through every time they walk out of prison. Oh, my God, I'm walking into a new world. So everybody's going to walk into a new world in the next month or so. And the, there's a lot of reentry programs. It's all cognitive. There's a lot of it's cognitive, a lot of it's thinking process, a lot of it's engagement and taking it a step at a time. Don't try to do too much. I tell people it's not about buying gifts for your kids. It's about being there for your kids. All the things I would say to a person walking out of prison. I would say to somebody coming on the back end of coronavirus lockdown or quarantine, because it's literally the same dynamic. Top three to five things. What, what should we pay attention to? Top three to five things. You want to definitely pay attention to how much, if you're at home with your family, how much time are you spending with family? That's number one. If you're at home with the family, I don't care if you're watching TV together, if you're eating together, if you're in the backyard yep. together, what are you doing? How much of the time is a unit together? We used to play Monopoly when I was a kid. We used to, my, my wife used to play board games with her mom and dad. I mean, she like stressed me out. She wanted to play board games like once a week on Saturday. I'm like, I love you, but damn. <laughs> but she, cause she was conditioned that way. We're home. How do we make the best of this situation by spending time with our family? And you're going to find out that you don't know them as well as they, you should. They don't know you as well as they should, but you have to work through it. Don't let that, don't let the uneasiness about not knowing what to do stop you from getting to it. Because the uneasiness of like, I don't know how to do this, will stop people from engaging. Get it wrong until you get it right. But get in motion. One. Number two, you have to say, okay, but there's a million new problems that didn't exist last week. There's a million new problems, which means there's a million new business opportunities. I got a friend named Keith Alpha. He said, you give me a cell phone, phone me out anywhere in the world, come back in five days, I have a business. There are businesses right now that exist that will exist that didn't exist three weeks ago. Didn't exist. 
There is a whole new world right now based on coronavirus in the entrepreneurial space. Some businesses had to go away. It's unfortunate. I don't know where Polaroid went. Like Polaroid was a decision that we didn't really agree, understand in foresight, but some businesses just went away. I'm saying 20 years from now, it won't be taxis. Everything will be Uber or something else. But the, the old school pay $100,000 for a medallion is over. Nobody's paying $100,000 for a medallion anymore. But right. that business had to go away for Uber to come forward. Hotels, Airbnb, I'm saying things are changing every day. And one business to come into existence, some businesses are going out of existence. So you have to say, okay, not what did we lose, but what is coming? What is, what is going to be the next nuance or the next niche? Zoom through the roof. Keith Alpha has a platform called GenieCast. It's all the greatest speakers in the world that you can beam into your office. He's, his whole business is preset on, for post-corona. It's like the greatest business he's had ever created. Now it just so happens, post-corona, he's lit. I mean, yes. it's like he, didn't, he doesn't wish this on people, but a back-end benefit is, it's gonna be, it's gonna be there. So now people help. How about this, Nick? Have you ever seen Asian people walk around with masks on way before this happened? Yeah. <laughs> how, many, how many times you've been in the airport and you've seen an Asian couple with a mask on walking through the airport? And you say, look at these people. What's wrong with them? <laughs> they knew. <laughs> They've been on this for years. Dude, I'm saying to myself, how many times did I go through the airport? and see people from Asian countries walk around with these masks on. I'm like, nobody, what are you doing? I thought maybe it was sick, but I saw it was a continuous pattern. They had an insight that we didn't even want to pay attention to. But okay, third thing, spend time with your family, look at the new business, then three, then how do we build a better you? How do we build a better you? I've been in the house for two weeks. <laughs> the first things I did was everything and not have to deal with me. I, listen, my house is, listen, if I could show you, I built this whole house. I mean, I hung up, I, I put the pictures up, I did the curtains, I hung up, I did, my buddy hung up the TV, I hung up the whiteboard, I hung up these curtains. I, I mean, dude, the house is lit. I'm saying better, listen, this, this is it. This is like, I don't know the little house builders TV shows, or I could have been one. I just hung my flag out today. I'm saying, I actually hung my, I, when I, I went and bought a flag, Put it on a tree, it's out front. That was a lot. <laughs> I got the smart key entry, key locks. I've been home doing everything but sitting down saying, Andre, what do you need to work on? Andre, what are your things that you haven't let go of yet? Andre, what are the things that are holding you down? Cool, you got a book out. Cool, you got cool friends. What are you not facing inside yourself? This is a great time for introspection. This is a great time to say, okay, Andre, let, let's let's get it on the table because there, I'm not doing as good as I should be doing because I'm not doing as good as I should be doing for me. And this is a great time to say, okay, my friends are away. I can't be, be I'm, I'm a professional at being busy. I am professional at being busy. I've talked to my son more than this last two weeks and a half and say three months because I'm home all day and I can't make an excuse of, oh, I got to go to work. I'm in prison. I can't have my phone on. I'm on an airport. I'm on a plane. I get to sit home and I call him two or three. He's probably sick of me by now, but too bad. <laughs> so what are the things that I'm lacking in that I can strengthen? Four, um, whoever you believe in, believe. <laughs> whoever or whatever you believe in, believe. The whole world just got put on a screeching halt. That's not a man thing. <laughs> that's, not, that's not a man thing. The entire world went to a screeching halt. That's that's a higher power thing. <laughs> so whoever your higher power is, check in. Focus on him. Yeah, yeah. Check in. Give him a shout out. Because <laughs> he's definitely <laughs> shouting at you. <laughs> Give him a shout out. And lastly, think of the people who can't do for themselves. So I go into the prison and I encourage people. We're trying to, the prisoners at the prison, Academy of Hope, our prisoners are coming out. And they're doing, oh, it's Keith. I love Keith. That's my guy. So listen, that's that's like my number one guy on the planet, Keith Alpha. Genie Cast is in the building. You know what I'm saying? But um, think of people who are in need. And think of people who could use a phone call. And that's just not somebody who sleeps under a bridge. People's minds always is, oh, the homeless person. 
oh, the person who's on poverty. No, it might be your brother. It might be your sister. It might be your mom or dad. It might be your cousin. Who in your family, who in your life have you cut off? How many people, I mean, I've cut off people in my life. I'm not going to lie. They've irritated me. They insulted me. They offended me. They just got on my nerves. They borrowed money. They didn't pay it back. Whatever the story was. How many people have I cut off in my lifetime? And how do I get them back? Keith Cunningham, um, rich dad, poor dad, rich dad, um, road less stupid. He, yeah, he has a great saying, road less stupid. If you could have all of your customers that you've ever had, where would your business be? I use that in this instance to say, if you could reconnect all the people in your life who aren't super toxic, <clears throat> now don't go take the toxic fun back. All the people you just had a disagreement with, or you, know, you just fell out with. If you can get those people back online, where would you, what would it be? Now, if somebody's super toxic and they're super like problematic and they're violent and they're disruptive, no, I'm not talking about those people. They need help first. I'm just talking like me and my sister. I got a sister that we just don't talk that much. Never had no beef. Um, we technically love each other. We just don't talk that much. So I need to pick up the phone and say, hey, sis, how are you doing? Not because of Corona, but because I need to talk to you. This is a great. I talked to my brother the other day for like 40 minutes. Never talked to my brother. We just don't talk. It's just one of them things we do. Me and my older brother just don't talk. He called me the other day and I turned the, I turned the TV off and I actually talked to him for like 30, 40 minutes. And we, we, we survived. And that'll lead to another conversation. Who knows? I might call my little brother next. <laughs> <laughs> love it. I love it. I love it. Don't think the people who need you are always somebody that you don't know. We want to help them too, but there are people that know you that would be so blessed to hear from you. Absolutely love that. Uh, Ambassador of Hope, hold up that book for us, Andre. We got to get a little more promo, a little more plug in for that book. Uh, pick up a copy, make sure you read it, leave a review because that helps on Amazon, everywhere else. Uh, check out Ambassador Hope, Andre's new book. Andre, uh, you take him out, man. I appreciate you coming on the show. Thank you so much. And uh, that's amazing work. Where can they learn? They got to go buy the book, Ambassador of Hope, and then where can they go and learn more? They can go to um, AndreNorman.com. Everything's on my website. And just send me an email, CEO at AndreNorman.com. Um, they always reach out to you. Hit me on Facebook. Um, whatever works best for them. Instagram, Andre Norman. But um, if you really want to find me, um, go out and do some service work. We'll probably bump heads. I'm, I'm sure I will see you there. I owe you some of that, too. When the quarantine's over, I got the school and the church, everybody lined up, man. So we'll do it. Uh, thank you again for coming on, man. Love you, brother. Thanks for all you do. Thank you, sir. Make sure you like and subscribe and check out the next episodes.